Hello and welcome to episode number 171 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Dimitar Bechev. He is lecturer at the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies at the University of Oxford and the author of Turkey Under Erdogan, How a Country Turned from Democracy and the West, published by Yale University Press. Dimitar has published a number of books and papers on Turkey, Russia and European politics. In fact, he previously appeared on this podcast back in August 2018 discussing Turkey-Russia competition in the Balkans, if you fancy delving back into the archives for that one. In this latest book, he gives us a primer on, as the title suggests, Turkey under Erdogan, how the country came to where it is today, how Erdogan came to where he is today. It's a broad but nicely executed overview for the general reader covering domestic and foreign politics at this crucial turning point ahead of elections in Turkey scheduled for next year, which may well pose a stiff challenge for Erdogan, or at least the country. We talk about the past and the possible future in our conversation. But before we get started with the interview, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman History titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and e-books. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Dimitar Bechev. We actually spoke before Erdogan lifted Turkey's veto on the NATO membership bids of Sweden and Finland at the NATO leaders meeting last week. Around the lifting of that veto, familiar debates had swirled around about Turkey's orientation between the West and Russia amid its ongoing high-wire balancing act between Ukraine and Moscow since February. So I started by asking Dimitar Bechev whether he's been surprised by that balancing act that Turkey's pursued since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, I wasn't surprised. It reminded me of Turkey's behavior uh, in 2008 during the Russia-Georgia war and more recently the Turkish response to Crimea's annexation. In both of those cases, you had Turkey uh, trying to talk to the Russians to avoid being damaged by the situation spinning out of control, but at the same time preserving its connection to the West. Crimea would be probably a, a better comparator. There, Turkey 
sort of opposed from the start the annexation and has done ever since rhetorically, but emphatically refused to join the sanctions. And that's pretty much the behavior has followed this time around, except that it made more explicit the, the material support it's been giving to Ukrainians, as well as the more robust mediation effort it puts. You didn't have any of this, anything of the sort in 2014, but the broad pattern of behavior is pretty much the same. I don't see anything new, uh, and I, I was not really surprised, to be honest. Just wonder if there's any uh, scenario that that could change, you know, I mean, that you see these um, think pieces coming out about you know, if Russia has some kind of comprehensive win in Ukraine or if it's humiliated and Ukraine ends up with a victory, you know, would that change the calculation that Turkey is making in terms of this balancing act in any way? Probably, although I must say I, I don't see any scenario as, as viable. I think we are in, and it already shows in the Donbass for a long drawn out war, which will probably last months, if not years, and it will end up in a messy outcome, which will be somewhere in the grey zone between full victory for either side or, or a defeat. So they'll just grind down into some sort of stalemate. I think that's the likeliest outcome, which probably suits Turkey in a way. Although I think overall Turkey would have been better off in case of a resounding victory by the Ukrainians. But honestly, I don't think we're getting there. And again, this scenario where actually Ukraine recovers territory, especially in the south, the port of Berdyansk and, and the port of Mariupol and the Kherson region. And these are parts of Ukraine immediately next to Crimea, and which will allow Ukraine to retain control over the Black Sea littoral. And it's the part of Ukraine that Turkey probably cares the most. But it's not very likely given the correlation of forces, if I'm allowed to use an old Soviet expression. And the other scenario of a Russian victory where Ukraine is rooted, uh, possibly destroyed as a state, or, or Russia establishes its dominion over the whole of the south, uh, including Odessa, which from a Turkish point of view, I think it would be the least favorable outcome. I don't think that's viable either, given Ukraine's resilience and the amount of support it's been getting from, from the West. So longer term, this deadlock is what we're heading towards. And I'm sure Turkey will be well placed to take benefit. Another sidebar here, of course, is reconstruction and it's a bridge too far. But once things settle in Ukraine, there'll be a whole lot of buildings, infrastructure to be repaired. Uh, there'll be Western support, and which is the country next door with very well-experienced and high-capacity construction sector, which on top of it has a good connection to, to Kiev, to the government. I think Turkey can benefit from the, the next phase. But again, unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. Now, in the book, the chapter on Turkey's ties with Russia goes much more deeply into the history. And you describe how this balancing act really between Russia and the West does have that heritage behind it. It goes back decades. And you say, quote, that balancing act has one purpose to sustain and broaden Turkey's influence, whether in the Middle East and North Africa, the Balkans or Africa. And, you know, even during the Cold War, Turkey was never this uncomplicated Western ally. I mean, I think I think you see some accounts sometimes where, you know, people sort of assume that Turkey was just submerged within the Western camp during the Cold War and had no ties at all to the Soviet Union. But as you describe in the book, that wasn't the case. It cooperated pretty significantly with the Soviet Union in various industries from pretty much the 1960s forward. And obviously that cooperation expanded much more in the post-Cold 
Cold War era with the Russian Federation. So this balancing act that we're talking about in Ukraine does have precedent going back quite a few decades. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe it's appropriate here to refer listeners to an earlier podcast we recorded on precisely the long durée of, of Russian Turkish relations. Even in the Ottoman times, there were episodes of cooperation, for instance, during the Napoleonic Wars, when a combined Ottoman-Russian fleet under the command of a celebrated Russian admiral, they defeated Napoleon and conquered Corfu. So there are all kinds of flashbacks, but really the 1960s, 1970s is an interesting period because Turkey all of a sudden became significant recipient of developmental aid and Turkish governments after the coup in 1960 were much more open-minded about Russia and the Soviet Union, of course. And it's not a coincidence that it was at the time when the Cyprus issue came to poison the relationship between Turkey and Greece, but also in a way between Turkey and the US and build distance. And the type of response we've seen more recently when things go sour with Western powers, um, Turkey tries to work on an ad hoc basis with the rival pole. There were the building blocks already there, but of course there are differences as well because uh, the towering figure of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the type of relationship he has established with Vladimir Putin makes a whole lot of difference in this relationship. And those two countries that have been highly centralized and where decision-making is in the hands of one individual. Now, all this brings up the familiar question, really, of Turkey's orientation, crudely about whether Turkey will be aligned with the West or an alternative pole in the years ahead, you know, Russia or China or some kind of... Uh, Asian behemoth. And uh, there's a nice quote that I thought summarized your position. Well, you ask, is Turkey likely to team up with revisionist powers in mounting a frontal challenge to Western dominance in international affairs? Despite Erdogan's combative tone, the answer is no. Instead, Turkey will juggle between various centers in search of an advantage, a power in the middle or perhaps an entrepreneurial vendor in an increasingly crowded geopolitical bazaar. The reason I'm highlighting that quote is because it does seem very sensible to me. It's not really a hot take or anything. It's not a sensational take, but it's probably the way that things are going to turn out. It seems to me, you know, an increasingly chaotic, maybe multipolar world with many different centers of gravity and countries like Turkey trying to play all these centers off against each other. So does that framing make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. And to be fair to the current government, and as those who read the book know, I'm not sugarcoating any of their failures or democratic deficiencies. They did push back against Russia, and that became obvious in 2020 when actually Turkey took casualties in Idlib, but also fought back. It also fought Russian proxies in, in Libya. So out of NATO up to the Ukraine war now that after 24 uh, February, Turkey was the only case where actually a NATO member would engage Russia, whether directly or indirectly on, on the battlefield. And that counts for something. Now, people around Erdogan, intellectually, they think that the West is declining, that there will be new centers of power, and Turkey has an opportunity in this more diverse world to assert its role. That theory sometimes works, and sometimes it's confronted by hard facts, but it, I think it, it, it does inform their, their, their thinking. But 
in this scenario, in this landscape, Turkey is not there to align fully with any of the emergent centers of power. It's there to push for its own interests. And of course, you could argue that national interest is a bit of a murky concept. And in that case, it's what the entourage and the leader define it to be. But Turkey is, is the lone wolf in this constellation. And I must say, this corresponds with the psyche. One survey after the other testifies that the Turkish citizen, the average Turkish citizen, doesn't see any other power with the possible exception of Azerbaijan and Northern Cyprus as aligned in the more fundamental sense. I mean, the outside world is hostile, it's threatening, and Turkey's mission is just to jiggle those connections and hope for the best. Uh, that's also probably the lesson from Republican history, because at the interwar period when the Republic was built, it was surrounded by colonial powers in the Middle East by uh, Bolshevik regime, by Italy uh, in the Dodecanese, and therefore it had to just survive after a generation that had seen Turkey collapsing, I mean, the Ottoman Empire collapsing, and scrambling to, to stay in business. So this mentality is nothing new. It's been reinvented now under the AKP and Erdogan, but it has deeper roots and it resonates with, with society at large, I would think. Now, bringing things back to Turkey's domestic agenda, really, you've uh, expressed optimism about Turkey's mid to long term democratic credentials in the past. And you, you basically make the point that, you know, Turkey has democratic reflexes going back decades and this history of robust multi-party democracy that is sometimes discounted, I think, in uh, in accounts of the way the situation is at the moment. For obvious reasons, you know, Erdogan has pretty robust control and uh, it's pretty obvious the situation at the moment. But you argue that that current situation can potentially blind us to this quite robust heritage, really, of multi-party democracy that you argue really contrasts with more traditionally authoritarian states like, for example, Russia or China, which don't have this deep-rooted history or reflex for multi-party democracy. And it makes them a, a lot more fragile when it comes to, to use a kind of wonky term, democratic backsliding. So just outline that case that some people might be pretty sceptical of, but just outline that case for optimism for us. It's funny you should say that I'm optimist because there's a sentence in my epilogue which suggests that even in the long term, Erdogan will be there in some shape or form as an idea. So I'll, the way I put it was Erdoganism will, will survive or there will be Erdogan's Turkey uh, down the road. So I've been taking some criticism by people saying that I'm too downbeat. But... Joke aside, that's their they, fans of Erdogan, which you know, would be a fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I do think that Turkey is not destined to be an authoritarian country. I mean, for long decades, we've been bemoaning the fact that Turkey has been having a hard time consolidating a democratic regime. So from what people call electoral regime, it always struggled to go a level deeper in terms of institutional integrity, rule of law, minority rights, and the whole shebang of what defines consolidated democracies. But I think the opposite is true as well. Turkey will be having a hard time to consolidate an autocratic system from what it has right now, which which people have described as a competitive authoritarian regime combining democratic 
or at least electoral elements with authoritarian governance. So going into the other direction would be difficult. Turkey won't become Azerbaijan or Turkmenistan or uh, Iraq and Saddam or Egypt. In fact, one of the problems with studying Turkey is it's pretty unique. And I don't say it lightly. It's hard to compare it to any of its neighbors because it differs in so many dimensions. But with this difficulty to consolidate longer term an authoritarian regime, especially when the charismatic personality as Erdogan is gone from the stage for whatever reason, also spells a sense of optimism that with him absent, his successors will be in position actually to negotiate a return to democratic governance. And and I did say that Turkey is unique, but you have cases of the pendulum swinging back and forth, but they just happen to be in other parts of the world. Latin America will be an example where countries have gone in both directions. So that's, I think, the pattern in Turkey. And I tend to be corrected by what happens in 10 or 20 years. But my instinct is that, yeah, eventually Turkey will revert to its old self, which is a competitive, semi-democratic system with free and fair elections with a lot of tension and polarization. The Kurdish issue probably will be there and it will create another persistent problem for democratic consolidation. But it will be a more democratic place than it is right now. And the Erdogan regime will find it hard to reproduce itself. I mean, it's already obvious with the difficulty of finding a successor. The successors we had in past years have flopped. One was Berat Arbayrak, the son-in-law, who now is held as one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that Turkey finds itself in this economic mess. The other one, Suleiman Soylu, the minister of interior, who was always angling to be the heir apparent Erdogan, especially as Erdogan is aging and looks increasingly tired and is buffeted by the economic situation. But he, Soylu, has likewise had a bad spell. Um, Sedat Peker's allegations exposing Soylu as a figure connected to the underworld has damaged his reputation. So we don't know who might be the next one, but it's clear that it's, it's hard to pass the baton. And it's a problem for such a system which is so personalistic and depends upon personal loyalty and connection to the leader where institutions have been hollowed out. And that's why I think longer term, combined of course with the vitality of the opposition, which has shown its capacity to overcome, maybe tactically, but still overcome the various lines of division amongst, amongst them and to contest elections and to win elections against the odds and the economic situation that favors them. So if you put all that together, Erdogan's waning appeal, the problem of succession, the opposition getting the act together and, and fighting, you could see that Turkey needs not stay in the place it is right now, and it might actually recuperate some of its democratic credentials. Of course, that doesn't mean that Turkey will be exemplary democracy, it won't be a Sweden, but it won't be a China or Egypt either. So that's roughly what I think will happen in the decade to come. I suppose one counter-argument would be that Erdogan, the longer he stays in power, the more the power is centralised around his office. Everything becomes connected to him as it has become. That means that, you know, this long-term optimism that you express could be very long-term indeed, because in the short term or in the medium to long term, 
it could be very turbulent because when Erdogan goes, however he goes, there's going to be hardly anybody who can fill that space. And there's going to be some kind of paralysis in the state because only one man can rule it at the moment. So this idea of a, a more maybe combative system with multiple different parties jostling for position in positions of authority. It's hard to see how that can emerge when, you know, at the moment we have a situation where it's basically just one man making the decisions. No, that's absolutely uh, true. Um, also reminds me of Keynes' famous dictum that in the long term we are all dead. I mean, there is truth to it. Transition won't be that easy. It won't be smooth. There'll be a period of turmoil, likely. And let's not forget geopolitics. The external environment plays a role. And so before we get there, it has to get worse before it gets better. But I, I still think that the final destination will be the Turkey we are more accustomed to know. But again, there is a lot of contingency and it's really important how you play. And let's also mention that Politicians on the centre-right has a special role to play, since much of the electoral competition would be for the votes of the Conservatives in Turkey. So to bridge the gap and to navigate the post-Erdogan situation, you will actually need credible leaders coming from that part of the spectrum, which almost reminds me of what happened after Franco. And I know some Turks are offended when I compare Franco and Erdogan did different leaders. And, but what happened in Spain was that the successes on the right were able to sit down and negotiate the future democratic system with the challenges on the left. And it has become a textbook example of democratic transition. So something of that kind needs to happen in Turkey, which highlights the role of agency. So what I said about the long-term destination, it might or might not come about, depending on where there will be mature politicians who take the response decision and actually be able to, to cooperate. From what I see on the opposition side, where again we have six parties with very different outlooks, from Islamist conservatives to secularists and from nationalists to the Kurds, because the seventh hidden member in the coalition is the HDP, you see this maturity that is needed. But how will we playing out later? It's a matter of speculation. I'm with you when you say that there's so many risks and the danger of turmoil. I mean, Turkey has seen a lot of difficult episodes in the past few years. I mean, major terrorist attacks, a coup attempt, the reemergence of the Kurdish issue. There is reason to be cautiously pessimistic as well about the immediate aftermath. I suppose the other thing is the uh, the emergence of this new kind of nationalism, and it's very much centered on sort of anti-refugee, anti-migrant sentiment, uh, a new hardline Turkish nationalism. That's a bit of a wild card as well, because, you know, that's not part of the institutional opposition at the moment. And it could be an increasingly important factor in any election process, but also in you know the shaping of political discourse, really. So and that is something that is completely outside of Erdogan's hands, it seems, at the moment. He's just kind of buffeted by these forces that in many ways he's unleashed, but at the same time, you know, he can't really do anything about it at the moment. And uh, that's a real wild card going forward, I think. Yes, I definitely think it's the case. There are several things to say here. One is some of the energy is, is being harnessed by the opposition, but I don't think you can control this, this force. And the second thing to say is there is a slight irony because Turkey has gone down the path of some Western European countries. So that's the dark side of Europeanization, if you will, the backlash against asylum seekers and refugees. So <laughs> 20 years ago, we thought about 
becoming like Europe as a matter of adopting liberal values and embedding democracy and conducting reforms. But I mean, there's the dark side of Europe. Let's not fool ourselves. And Turkey is becoming, in a weird way, a bit more like those societies. So that's an ironic twist. But on a more serious note, I think this phenomenon that you alluded to, the fact that you have this nationalism that has various articulations and it's not necessarily in tune with the state-promoted nationalism and the type of ideology Erdogan espouses, I think this testifies to the omnipresence of, of nationalism as a force in Turkish society and politics, but also to its multiplicity. It takes so many shapes and forms. I mean, there's, there's a secularist version of nationalism that was really prominent in the early days of the AKP when the Republican People's Party was leading this onslaught against Erdogan as the one threatening to divide Turkey and to implement the Severed Treaty. So there was very secularist, Kemalist-tinged nationalism. There's always been a left-wing version. And later on, there's this conservative Islamist version of nationalism. Erdogan, who started his career as sort of politician eager to cooperate with liberals, with anti-nationalists, and reopen many of the traumatic issues of the past, including the Kurdish issue, sort of morphed into this national leader tapping into resentment against the West, turning against the Kurds, embracing the idea of the strong state. But it's his own version where actually Islam is much more central than in what all Turkey conceived of as, as the Turkish national idea. But again, nationalism is such a versatile force or set of ideas and has such a strong emotional appeal to voters that it is there to be used as a symbolic resource by any leader, which also connects to the previous question, what happens after as well. I think the next leader or set of leaders will be equally nationalistic in their own ways. And it's very likely that anti-refugee rhetoric will be part and parcel of political discourse we already see with the opposition. One of the nice things that your book does is it locates Erdogan as a recognizable part of a contemporary Turkish historical process. A lot of the analyses that you see out there frame him as this completely revolutionary figure who's basically upended decades of Turkish political traditions and is somebody almost completely outside of history who's just sort of overthrowing everything. And that has always been a very simplistic way of looking at things. And as you show in the book, in many ways, you can trace Erdogan's political lineage back decades, not really as an insurgent, but as this pretty recognizable conservative religious nationalist figure. And that kind of recognizable conservative religious nationalist figure has really had a strong presence in the Turkish state apparatus throughout a lot of the 20th century, really. And at times it was even supported both ideologically and practically by sections of the state. So I just wonder, you know, how important is it to understand Erdogan and his political tradition within that historical lineage, essentially, not as a revolutionary, but very much as a continuity from past decades? Well, I'm really glad you picked up on this because I think it's central to the story I'm, I'm trying to tell. On the one hand, it's hard to deny the transformative role he has played, and not just him, but also the movement he spearheaded. But at the same time, it's also always a dialectical relationship where continuity and change sort of coexist. 
that's very much obvious in this nationalist synthesis that emerged in more recent years, certainly after Gezi and after, certainly after the coup attempt, whereby Erdogan coalesced with factions in the state apparatus, and he was comfortable with that. But also, it was, I think, visible in his earlier reincarnation when he had this liberal face, because then he became what he was thanks to an alliance with forces that had been around in the 90s and, and, and before. And the liberal intelligentsia, the Kurdish movement, the business elites. So his talent as a politician is to sometimes work on cleavages or exploit cleavages, discontinuities, but at times as any politician to negotiate and to organize coalitions. So if you are thinking about coalescing, then also you're thinking about how you build bridges and then the theme of continuity becomes very pertinent. It's also kind of interesting how Turkey has gone full circle. This is something I wanted to touch upon in the first chapter, because if you think about the starting point in the 1990s, boom and bust cycles, tensions with neighbors, the Kurdish issue, almost looks as if we, we went a full circle. And that reminds us of all those threads that, that run. But on a broader note, I think we always have to keep an eye on continuities. That's something I was inspired when I was reading years ago, the work of um, people like Jan-Erik Zürcher on the earlier Republic. And one thing he did sort of pick up on was that we tend to think about the Kemalist period as this breakup with the tradition and, and so on. And there is a good reason for that. But if you think about the biographies of all the central characters in the interwar, they actually built upon what was already there, uh, this drive to modernize and preserve the Ottoman state. So the breakup of the past was balanced by threads of continuity. And I think it's something similar between what we had in the 2000s, 2010s and, and the previous period. And now we see in our present those echoes of that time, meaning the, the 1990s. So basically my message is let's not go in either extreme think about Turkish history starting in November 2002. That would be wrong, patently wrong. But equally, give credit to Erdogan for what he has achieved in terms of shifting the discourse, remaking the, the institutions in his image, reshuffling the various political alliances. He is a transformative figure, but as you said, up to a point. Now, looking forward a bit, I want to kind of game out a few scenarios really for the next election, whether that's an early election or whether it takes place on schedule next year, 2023. So there's obviously a lot of anticipation for that election, as always in Turkey. You know, people saying it's the critical election that's going to completely define everything. And it really is uh, do or die for the opposition. And one scenario that you talk about in the book that I don't think has yet really been discussed enough elsewhere is this one where the opposition somehow wins a majority in parliament, but Erdogan still wins a presidential vote. And I've got to be honest, I think that seems like quite a likely scenario. But obviously, that would be a very messy, chaotic situation constitutionally. But you argue convincingly, I think, that 
Erdogan would absolutely have the upper hand in this scenario because obviously he's got control over pretty much the entire state. You know, he's got control over the judicial branch, uh, the constitutional court, basically regulatory bodies, administrative bodies, security agencies, and of course, a large swathe of the media. So just game out a few of these scenarios. I mean, do you still stand by that assessment? What do you expect? I mean, it's an impossible question to answer, but looking ahead to the election next year, how do you see things developing? Yeah, it's it's hard to speculate from, from this vantage point. And for one, I'm not in Turkey and what I have is sometimes secondhand and it's a bit impressionistic. But maybe I have the privilege of being detached from the hustle and bustle of, of, of daily politics. One thing that is for sure, at least to my mind, is that Erdogan will be fighting tooth and nail for his survival in power. Because the nature of the system he has built gives him no other option. Stepping down would be difficult. I mean, a d- democratic system, the costs of doing so are bearable because there is the rule of law, you have a fair chance to come back to power, and you're protected, there won't be a witch hunt after you. Whereas if you fall from power for someone like, like you, then problems will be piling up. And the same politically dependent judiciary he has built might easily turn against him, including his family and his cronies. So if the alternative to staying in power is to go to jail or to go to exile, uh, then it's only rational to fight until the bitter end and use any means to, to retain control. I think that's what is going to happen. Uh, secondly, it's not a level playing field in the sense that the incumbent that is Erdogan has control of the media, of narrative, of framing. I mean, remember what happened in Hungary, a very different case. They had an election on the 3rd of April and the opposition did everything by the book. They united in the joint block. They had a strong conservative candidate and then nobody heard about this person because the incumbent controlled the the media sphere. I'm pretty sure that it will be similar in Turkey. The AKP slash Erdogan message will be left, right and center. And then whether it's Kalos Darulu or Ekremi Mamolu being the joint candidate, they'll be marginalized. And it's just one item in the toolbox. There's state money, the state weighing in on the side of the incumbent, maybe on the day after the elections, rigging some of the results. It will be nasty, I think. So that's a very likely scenario that the joint opposition candidate had one in the presidential race run neck and neck. And it's a very small margin. Then Erdogan declares victory that's contested by the opposition. And Turkey goes through a period of instability. But Erdogan, just by virtue of being the incumbent, carries on. Then, yeah, uh, like you said, it's important to remember the, the other race, the parliamentary race, because it matters as well. I'm not sure if the opposition will be able to score a victory there, but if they do, that might turn out to be the one concession Erdogan gives them. Because even now he doesn't have majority, he's dependent on MHP votes. So there is some serious thinking into how you retain this uh, parliamentary majority. 
But if the chips are down and the price for staying in the presidency is to allow some space for the opposition to capture one institution, that might well happen. And then that generates another set of problems because we have guerrilla war between the president and, and parliament, which will be resolved or played out in media, also the constitutional court. That will create instability in, in decision-making. So that's not a very good scenario either. So overall, I think I'm pretty pessimistic about what's going to happen in this election. And in that way, I, I differ from many people in Turkey who are quite a bit because they see blood. The third one is holding very low, historic lows that the AKP is hemorrhaging support a lot and they sense it could be a critical moment. I mean, a year is a long time in politics. There are lots of dirty tricks. There's the problem with this cute playing field. And I think eventually everyone will have to find a way to survive. And it's going to be ugly. So even if I'm optimistic about the longer term, I don't think next year will be this critical moment. I mean, famous last words. I don't know what's going to happen. That's, that's the truth. But that's my intuition. That was Dimitar Bechev. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 171. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.